Welcome to your favorite YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We have Dr. Dandy Don Simpson in the house today, Jimmy. Give us a little bit of Don's bibliography and let's jump right into the conversation. Yeah, man. Megaton Man, Border Worlds, Pictopia, Splitting Image, Savage Dragon versus Savage Megaton Man, uh, 1963, Bizarre Heroes, and recently, X amount of comics, 1963, when else annual, complete Megaton Man forthcoming from Fanagraphics and Victory Folks. Amazing, man. Don, thanks for coming by. Pittsburgh. Oh, it's home. out, man. It's it's out. It's not forthcoming. It is it is a reality, Let's baby. Talk, talk about that Megaton Man <laughs> on the bus. It's, it's forthcoming. Thank, thanks for joining us, sir. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. It's an early uh, day here in here in the Berg in the in the four one two area code. So let's let's start things off and popping. Uh, years ago, you know, I always wanted to ask you this, Ben. Uh, and everybody knows the phenomenon. You receive the text message and you don't quite know how to interpret. You can't interpret tone over text. So tell us about those uh, those uh, letters that were printed in eight ball that were hand lettered by Dan Klaus and eight ball. What was the tone of those? This video is brought to you by the books that we make. Street Angel Princess of Poverty is my next release from Image Comics. This will be in comic book shops late November. You need to pre-order that one now. It collects all the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel Deadliest Girl alive. I am self-publishing and will be selling these on jimrug.com in late October, October 26th. These go on sale. True Crime Funnies, three non-fiction stories, 1986 zine celebrating the biggest year in comics history, and BW, a collection of black and white explosion and self-published titles from the 80s. And Hulk Grand Design, my contribution to the Grand Design history, is uh, basically sold out. So pick that one up if you haven't already added it and your short store still has a copy, you want to grab that. Ed Piscor's Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus, collecting all of the Hip Hop Family Tree, plus 140 extra pages, is now in finer bookstores and comic shops everywhere in one beautiful volume. Add that to your shelf before it's too late. X-Men Grand Design, the trilogy, collecting all three volumes of X-Men Grand Design, will be coming to comic shops in late November. Pre-order that one now. And finally, Ed Piscor's Red Room, Trigger Warnings, and the Antisocial Network are both available wherever you buy books or comics. And a third volume, Crypto Killers, will be out in January. And now back to the video. That's the story of my life, man, is nobody gets my tone. So, uh, no, I just, Dan loved them. Have you ever talked to Dan about it? I sent these, I sent these, uh, well, these were letters, you know, these were, uh, you wrote letters in the old days, you mailed it. And uh, the postman delivered it, and uh, they ran them in, in letters pages. <laughs> and that's all we got now in comics is letter pages on the Internet. is just discussion or commentary. Right. Nobody, nobody does comics anymore. It's just all commentary. But I sent them to Dan, and I said, yeah, you're just jealous because you can't draw real superhero comics. And he loved it. He ran it. And there are people that to this day think that. I was serious, <laughs> but I kind of am, but he's got, you know, he's got his New York times bestseller, Monica. So he got his revenge, but yeah, he's done. I was right just joshing. Don, what was that like in the eighties? Like, were you, did you consider yourself part of that alternative comics group? I mean, it was much smaller back then the indie black and white, you know, uh, self publishers or small press at the time. Did you consider yourself a part of that alternative comics group? We were we were all one big happy family, Jim. No, it was it was much smaller then, and but it was very tribal. I mean, uh, you got into the business and you were either an AV guy, 
like Jim Valentino, I met Jim Valentino and he was like attached to Dave Sim at Aardvark Van Heim. And I literally saw them walking around in Chicago at the 80, must have been 85 convention. There was like, you were with this company, you were with this imprint, you were, you were a Marvel person. The Marvel people were very aloof. Uh, they were very, they did not interact. The DC people were recruiting alternative people, so they were a lot friendlier. Um, you guys seem to have broken all those barriers now. You do this alternative thing, you do your Marvel thing, and you somehow cracked that that rock. But um, back then, it was like you were you were with that company. I always identified. I mean, I just saw Jaime last weekend in Ann Arbor, and I said hello. And he, he never, he's never. It's never been a mutual admiration society. But I always, uh, I always loved his stuff. I, I remember Love and Rockets number two before they became critically acclaimed. And I was like, he's the only guy that I ever really um, envied because his figure drawing was so great. His design was so great. And he, he just seemed to be doing so many of the things that I wanted to be doing. Um, uh, Dan Close, I always admired. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the fanographic stuff that was, um, uh, I'm blanking on the the cat. Uh, who's uh, uh, Captain Jack? No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm, Omaha, I'm, the cat I'm, dancer. No, no, no. I'm, well, it was no, it was Fantagraphics. Uh, uh, Woodring, Jim Woodring stuff. I mean, I mean, there was just there was this great stuff. So I identified with those cartoonists i i identified with the 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 crowd that was um i think we were organized along the lines of work for hire more than to my mind more than superheroes i mean we were against i grew up with the first the here all right let's go back to the to the origins the first professional cartoonist I met was Keith Pollard, who was penciling Spider-Man. He, he was doing breakdowns for Spider-Man. He was penciling the Fantastic Four. He was penciling Thor uh, in the late 70s. And I was in high school. I'd been 15, 16. I had, to, I had to be able to drive, so I was at least 16. And he lived about 40 minutes away from me in suburban Detroit. He lives in Southgate. So I got to visit him. Um, he was the first pro that I really met. I met Mike Gustavich years before that, and I met other people, but he was like at the top of the business. And so, you know, the first thing I asked him was, you know, do you, you know, you're penciling these stories. Do you ever put in your own characters? You must have your own characters. I think that's, that's the coolest thing in the world would be to put your characters into a Marvel story because I was, I would have been in middle school, high school, I would have been drawing the meddler and I would have been drawing this early version of the slick kind of this uh, Ditko roof runner character I had and had other, had other characters, excuse me. And I, um, I, I mixed when I was sitting, you know, I was supposed to be doing my math homework in school. I would be drawing on the back of the ditto sheets and I would be drawing my characters with Spider-Man and, and the vision and, and uh, Captain America and so forth. So I'm asking this professional penciler, don't, don't you want to put your characters in? He goes, he goes, uh, he says, well, yeah, I have a, I have a closet full of my own characters, but I'm not going to just give them away to Marvel. And I was like, 
What? What are you talking about? And I, you know, I didn't know what minimum wage was, let alone work for hire or intellectual property. There was, there was no, no, none of this vocabulary at the time. So he's explaining, well, you know, you know, uh, Siegel and Schuster got ripped off, and Steve Gerber got ripped off, and and he also uh, mentioned uh, Rich Buckler. I don't think this is as well known, but Rich Buckler created Deathlock, and he had some kind of deal where he could keep the rights, but he somehow forfeited the rights because he wasn't making his deadlines or something. Or he he could have. Uh, Keith said Keith told me at the time that he that Buckler could have. Um, on a paperback, like a prose paperback version of Deathlock, and he could have kept his rights or something, but he somehow lost it. So this is all new to me, like creator ownership. You know, the fact that, and it just blew my mind because I would see Keith's work, and he would pencil, and he would send it in to Marvel, and sometimes he'd get Joe Sinnott to ink it. It would turn out great. Uh, Keith said, uh, he goes, he says, I turn in my stuff and Joe Sinnott turns it into art. And, but other times he would send it in and Dave Hunt would ink it and it would look, or Jim Mooney would ink it and it would be hacked out, rushed, whatever. And that just blew my mind that you could, because I'm, I'm spending hours penciling little figures and stuff. I wasn't even doing page layouts at that point. But the idea of wedding over a work of art then you send it into Marvel, the greatest company in the world, and they could just assign it to whoever they want. And if you create a character for them, they could just give it to somebody else to draw. And it's like, that just blew my mind. I'm 16 years old, and this is like, whoa, wait a minute. I put on the brakes. I, this is, I've been preparing myself for the career as a Marvel penciler, but it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, I don't know about this. So, couple things emerged from that. I, I, I started teaching myself how to ink, and that led to, so Keith had me doing page layouts. He says, you got to start doing page layouts. You can do like Steranko, do like a close-up, do like a panoramic long shot, and do a two-shot, you know, mix it up and do, do designs, design your pages and so forth. So I started doing that. Next time I, I visited him, so I'm, I'm, uh, I've got these silent pages right no no words and, and, and then he's saying well this is great but you're not leaving enough room for the lettering you need to leave a third of the top of the panel for the lettering because they were working marvel style so i'm like well how in the world do you know how how much space to leave he says well just put, put some blank balloons in it i went home and i tried that and i didn't like it so then i'm thinking well i got to put something in I'm, so i started writing <laughs> This is how I became an auteur, right? So I'm like, go from Marvel penciler to I'm inking and I'm lettering and I might as well write something. I'm going to write my own dialogue. So that's how it all came about. It wasn't really uh, an aversion to superheroes per se, you know, the, the testosterone, the, well, the teen, the teen power fantasies is, is com the comics journal like, used to like to say back in those days. Um, it when, was when more an aversion. Read comics. <laughs> when teenagers, well, when you know middle-aged men recalled their teenage heartbreak or something. <laughs> um, so that's that's that was really the uh, the impetus 
was, you know, I just didn't want somebody in New York telling me what to do. I didn't want permission. I didn't want copyright. I didn't want my stuff turned over to somebody else to finish. And um, I, I came to, I had always been writing and drawing, you know, since I was in grade school, but, but uh, the auteur theory of comics, the, being a cartoonist, doing the whole thing, that came uh, kind of in reaction to this revulsion that I felt toward the assembly line comic book uh, industry. And, and it was very painful because that was what I was, was gearing up for. And I was studying Bern Hogarth's dynamic anatomy, and I was reading How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way that just came out around the same time. And uh, I, was, I was fixed on a, a Marvel penciling career. But like I say, I didn't know anything. I didn't know about minimum wage or contracts or creative ownership. And this is way before toys and movie licensing. That wasn't really a consideration, you know. The image guys years later, they're all pissed off because they're turning, you know, Rob Liefeld's character designs into toys and Rob's getting pennies or nothing, you know. Um, that, that was an issue in the 90s. But in the 70s, they had terrible... Ego toys and a few stickers and a, a couple TV shows, but it wasn't it wasn't the um, licensing and merchandising wasn't wasn't a consideration for cartoonists. Did you put in those uh, things? Yeah, did you put uh, cohesive strips together uh, before Megaton Man with lettering and you know all of the above, or is that your first you know sort of combination of all of those skills into one package? Well, so we're talking a five-year period, like around 1977. I graduated high school in 1980. So as I'm, I'm approaching graduation, I'm a couple things are happening. I'm starting to do page layouts, and I'm starting to add words. And I, uh, I did a five-page John Bradford story uh, in my senior year. John Bradford is a character from Bizarre Heroes. And he's the newspaper reporter. He's kind of Kolshak, the Night Stalker. He's my younger, hipper version of uh, Carl Kolshak. And I did a five-page story. Um, and that was basically the first full attempt at a penciled, ink, lettered, written. I was put writing last for some reason. But uh, a comics, comic book story. And it was pretty crude. I only have a terrible Xerox of it now. Um, but, um, and then after high school, I went to, uh, I went to an art school in Detroit center for creative studies, which was, um, frustrating because you couldn't really study cartooning. There was advertising, there was uh, what they called visual communications or advertising design. And then there was fine art, which was all abstract. And there was some really ugly figure models to draw. So I only lasted a year at that. And then I decided I was just going to do my own thing. But the other thing that was happening was I was becoming increasingly influenced by heavy metal magazine and undergrounds and some of the classic reprints like the Canon uh, Wally Wood reprints, you know, um, there's nothing like what there is today. There's all kinds of reprints, but kitchen sink, I was reading, you know, uh, Steve Canyon and, and, uh, there was a Kurtzman reprint of some of his strips. So I was more into, I was into like the art house 
comics. I was into art house movies, so I was seeing a lot of foreign films, Fellini and Godard and Truffaut and Charlie Chaplin and, and Ernst Lubitsch and, you know, all the classic cinema, Orson Welles and uh, Hitchcock and all that stuff. So I was into this arty thing, and I was living in Detroit. Now, in some alternate reality, I've always pictured that, you know, if I lived in New Jersey or if I lived in Connecticut, I could have gotten into New York City. Maybe as a teenager, I could have been a Ramita's Raider or something. But I was in Detroit, so it's like that's like the middle of the country, and that's, you know, and I'm I'm sending a few things through the mail. I got a rejection letter from Jim Shooter in 1981, something like that, um, which I took I took to heart. Like that was really devastating, a rejection letter. But now try getting a rejection letter out of anybody. You know, they, he actually typed it. He actually whited it out. He actually corrected it. And that's a you know I, now I would look at that and say, wow, I really Jim Shooter knows at least who I am. But I took it as like real a real defeat, you know. <laughs> but I was, um, I was, I was a, a doing. Um, I did this, did this really terrible comic strip on illustration board, and it was, uh, it was, I was shooting for heavy metal, and it was about a tank and a naked lady. <laughs> it it sounds stupid. like heavy metal. But it was, yeah, but it was, that was, that was like, you know, I thought this is really fine art. You know, this is really, uh, and the two characters in the tank, they're kind of the guys that end up in board worlds. They're uh, uh, Frank and uh, uh, Diggs. There's these two guys roaming around in a tank and they don't know where they are and they're lost and they don't know where they belong to. And there's a naked lady and it made no sense. But that was my idea of, of uh, real cutting edge fine art comics. And that got a couple rejection letters from uh, John Workman at uh, Heavy Metal. But that's that's where I was at. So I was doing that kind of thing. Now, you mentioned Megaton Man. Um, and I did a couple. Um, that was actually kind of the, the most recent thing I created at the time that I did it. Um, it wasn't like inventory from like, you know, sometimes we go back to junior high school and high school and we have characters from those days. A lot of that stuff ended up in Bizarre Heroes later. But Megaton Man was relatively recent. That was from uh, fall of 82. I came up with that character. Did you submit the entire and, package uh, as, a, as a submission to the publishers? Or uh, did you just have, say, the first chapter? No, I just had a character design and I had a concept. I mean, I, I well, I'm, had... I'm talking about when it was accepted uh, by by Kitchen Sink. What what did they see? Well, here's yeah, here's what happened. I mean, I, '82, I came up with the character design. I came up with the name, and I knew it had something to do with the Cold War and Marvel Comics, kind of the exaggerated superhero cliches and tropes. And I I proceeded to do like uh, I, I tried doing comic strips. I did like three or four comic strips that I was uh, pitching at an, to the alternate weekly kind of uh, crowd. There was the Detroit Metro Times. Um, and I actually did a couple comic strips for them, but not Megaton Man. They actually ran a couple of my film. I did a film satire strips. Uh, very crude. <laughs> excuse me. Very crude stuff. A lot of zipatone, a lot of overworked stuff. Um but I so I did a number of false starts with Megaton Man, and then 
at some point, I uh, in early '83, I started drawing this issue, and I did five pages, and you know, I was making it up as I went along. Uh, I think the first thing I did was was the Megaton Man meets the the quartet, and uh, yeah. and Yarn Man says, "How do we know this is not a you know this is a crummy imposter?" And the fight fight breaks out. It's five pages. <laughs> Excuse me, and that's that's all I had for quite a long time. And then I would come back to it, and I would think, all right, well, now he's got to have a secret identity. He's got to work at a newspaper, you know. So I did a little bit more. And then, you know, it was very sporadic. I was, uh, excuse me, sorry for my cough. I uh, that's my morning cough. Um, I just then I started to see longer and longer stretches of story, and and I thought, well, maybe this is something, you know. I, I, I was showing it to people, and I ended up doing the splash page in front of it. And I, uh, long story short, it, it took me 13 months, and I had a final thing, and I took it to the Wayne State University copy shop in the basement. Um, there was this old building there. Now there's a uh, Barnes and Noble student bookstore there that, that doesn't sell books it just sells uh, hoodies but um i got photocopies and i mailed it out to 15 different publishers and i got 15 different rejection letters from gary groth from uh epic illustrated mad magazine eclipse um what was the uh um there was a um, Pacific Pacific Comics and yeah Pacific Comics and First Comics and and all kinds of places. AV uh, Dave Sim wrote back and he said, "Yeah, sorry, we're already doing Normal Man. We already have enough parody, but this is really good." Uh, Joe Staten, who did E Man, was a superhero parody. He was the art director at First Comics, and I think by that point I'd already been picked up by Kitchen Sink. So um, he said, uh, uh, I, "I'm writing, getting back to you too late." This was this was an amazing period. If you think about it, people actually responded to your submissions, and I don't know when the last time Marvel has ever, you know, responded in writing to anybody's submission. Those were those days have long passed. But uh, I got a nice collection of letterheads of defunct companies, and. Uh, uh, People were generally encouraging, um, and uh, but uh, then I got this blue envelope shoved under my door, and it had the, the Leslie Kabarga kitchen sink logo on the left side, and I was like, "Oh, they're 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 not mailing back the Manila envelope with the samples," so I think, "Uh oh, I got something here," so I open it up, and Dennis is like, "Yeah, this is fantastic," and he was. Uh, Excuse me. He was looking for, I think he was looking for color comics because he had to he had to publish the color and spirit, kind of against his will. I think he had a gun up uh, against his head because uh, Eisner had this story called John Law that uh, Eclipse had put out, and they had scored big, big, big uh, sales, um, seventy five thousand sales uh, with the color Will Eisner story. And the spirit had always been in black and white in the 70s and 80s. So now Dennis had to be a, a color publisher. I don't think he really wanted to be. 
But then along comes this uh, superhero parody, and, and uh, Dennis uh, figures, oh, that, that would make it good. Uh, because otherwise, I mean, I'm just a beginner. That was my first comic book. I had no story arc in mind. I had no, I, you know, I didn't had no idea I could do it again, let alone bi-monthly or monthly or whatever he was talking about. It was fun. Ended up doing. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun watching uh, that that issue progress because uh, your your lettering chops page after page after page just uh, you start to get way tighter. Like that's the that's the part in issue one that is most clearly evident where you're solidifying more and more and more into into you know what your what your style becomes. Yeah, that's you know, and that's literally learning on the job, and and nothing goes to waste, as you know, in cartooning. If you got a finished page, put it in front of the camera, put it on the scanner, get it out there. I mean, you're not gonna uh, rethink it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, fits and starts, and a lot of growth spurts. And um, uh, I, I used to do my whys really funny, kind of you know, and I look at all these. Uh, People like my lettering. I get. I guess I had a certain sensibility to my lettering. It's kind of like Bill Griffith or something. But uh, I've gotten a lot tighter, and that's always the goal: is you just want to get good at it. You know, whatever it is, it's not necessarily to make a, a masterpiece. You just want. I just want to get good at this. I want to get better at this. One of the you know, things, Don, that I always respond to in your work is the level of craft. Uh, whether it's inking, figure drawing, lettering, you know, layout design, all of these things to me are exceptionally high level of craft. And it's something that I think comics have shifted in terms of how much they value craft. You know, there are certainly successful cartoonists where I don't know that craft is a priority. But it seems like with your stuff, it was a priority. And, you know, talking to you right now, I wonder was anybody pushing you in that direction or is that completely on you? Like, I guess, did you have a good editor? Did Dennis Kitchen give you any kind of like help along the way or was that all self-directed? Uh, no. And, uh, you know, and by the way, um, I look at that old stuff and I'm not all that impressed with it. It's pretty crude. I mean, there was a lot of overworked stuff. I look at the, at the eighties as pretty neurotic, you know, you're trying to prove that you can do it. You're trying to prove that you know your, you know that you know comic book history. So I'm, that was the perfect thing about Megaton Man as a parody. I had not thought of myself as a humor cartoonist. I hadn't thought of myself as a satirist or uh, doing comedy. I mean, I was real serious. I was doing, I was like Starenko and Bern Hogarth and and serious, you know, heavy metal serious stuff right naked ladies but serious you know and um but what was so great about the concept of megaton man was that i could i could i could make fun of all these different influences and pass it off as parody right so i could ink my my eyeballs out like neil adams or i could i could ink like wally wood or i could ink like whoever i could draw like Starenko, and I could really overindulge while I was trying to effectively incorporate all these influences into my own voice, you know, and I I was like a, the super adaptoid or something, you know, I was just trying to, I was trying to, excuse me, master all these different inking techniques 
the, the sable brush, the crow quill pen, the you know all the all those different tools, um, and later I was doing that with Border World. I was still doing that all through the '80s. I was still doing trying to blend um, Mobius, Jean Giraud with uh, Wally Wood and Ralph McQuarrie, and you know all these different influences. So parody actually made it useful. You know, you could you could exaggerate and you could do the hyped up uh, anatomy, and uh, it was funny. At the same time, I was trying to just get a handle on all this information and and try to um, harmonize it, try to blend it. How how do you how do you uh, if you're influenced by Crumb and John Romita, how do you blend those two things together? Or or and and fifty things, you know, fifty different artists. So that's what I was trying to do, um, and at the same time, I was making reference to, you know, I wanted to show people that I knew comics history, that I knew my, you know, I knew the the lore and the um, uh, the heritage, the rich heritage of cartooning, all that stuff, um, and that was that, that just lent itself perfectly to, or I should say, Megaton Man as a parody vehicle lent itself to that kind of exploration. So I could goof around with a lot of different styles. I could do Eisner for a sequence. I could do, you know, uh, Milo Minara, whatever. I could, you know, I could be influenced by a lot of different things and pass it off as humor. But at the same time, I was learning. I was trying to see if I could do it. But yeah, I guess it was all interdirected. I don't. Nobody was standing over me telling me, "You've got to do," you know. And especially at Kitchen Sink Press, you have to remember that Kitchen Sink was an underground publisher, and that meant if whatever came over the transom, you know, that's what got published in Snarf Number Three or whatever, right? Like there were no deadlines. What are you, a capitalist? <laughs> what, you know? I mean, these were a bunch of socialists in Milwaukee, uh, you know, and, and whatever came in and Crum, you know, Crum would deliver a book to Last Gasp and then he would deliver one to Rip Off Press and then he would deliver one to Kitchen Sink. He probably, I don't know if he even, even told these guys that it was coming, but whatever came in, that's it. That's your deadline. It's finished. It's ready to go. We've got a whole issue. Let's send it to the printer. And that was that was Dennis's orientation. Now he worked with Pete Poplaski and Pete is a perfectionist and he's the slowest guy in the world. And later he worked with Mark Schultz, who's another perfectionist, who's another slowest guy in the world. Dennis himself is the slowest artist in the world. I mean, those, those three would, would tie as, you know, I mean, make a deadline, forget it. Um, and Dave Schreiner was great to bounce ideas off of, but like I said, they they got into this. I'm convinced they got into this because Megaton Man seemed like a viable color comic for the direct market, and they wanted a color comic book line to complement the spirit, so they could broker better contracts with the color printers. It was very steep price. You know, I mean, it was expensive to put these things out in color. The, these had been uh, black and white publishers, Eclipse and 
Fantagraphics and and kitchen sink and and uh, doing doing color was was a riskier thing. So um, they they but they were not like you know I'm 23 years old. I'm this kid in Detroit. I wash dishes in a restaurant. <laughs> I I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And they're giving me a, a, a regular series, which is an incredible thing. Now, you know, I'm a diamond in the rough, let's say, but I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing. And uh, they were not they were not hands-on. I, I asked them, like, well, what the hell do you want next issue? Like, what, what am I supposed to do with this thing? I don't have an idea. And they're like, well, you'll think of something. You know, we believe in the artist. And that's all I would get from them. And I... I ended up living with them. I moved out to Wisconsin. I lived in the compound. And I got a little more immediate feedback, but they were still reluctant to really, you know, they, they didn't want to direct me. You know, this was this was creator-owned comics, after all. They were used to dealing with Will Eisner. So they had done undergrounds, and then they did the classic reprints. And again... When you're dealing with classic reprints, you're dealing mostly with inventory material. Eisner had drawn thousands of pages of the spirit, and he was doing new covers, and he was doing occasional blurbs and interviews and, and things, text pages and stuff like that. But it wasn't like Eisner was on a deadline, like he had to, like he had to draw you know, 30 pages next month, or, or the, that's the end of it, you know. Here I was, I'm like, what am I going to do for the second issue? What am I going to do for the third issue? What am I going to do for the fourth issue? I'm like, I'm not, you know, what, 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 what am I doing? <laughs> and I had no idea. I had no, and the other, here's the other thing. Uh, we live in an age now where you can go to the store, you can go on Amazon, you can buy like a hundred issues of the Fantastic Four and you can sit down and read them. I didn't, I didn't have that, you know, uh, I had maybe a few issues here and there. I had a few, a couple of years runs of stuff, but, and then everything's in plastic bags, right? You'd have to untape it. You'd have to read it. I had no idea how to construct a series. I had no conception of a story arc. I had no idea of, you know, like, uh, th th that was the amazing thing about reading JK Rowling is that she had this whole thing planned out. Like that's amazing to me. Like you could do that. It's one of that's the interesting whole, things flash forward. I find in comics is in something that I think we've lost a lot of with so much comics education now. Like those expectations, they they are. Uh, you can find those if you want them, and I think a lot of young cartoonists do. And I think it's more interesting. You know, this might be old man bias or whatever, but it's interesting to me that time period where everybody that showed up kind of had to teach themselves how to do this. And so you got a whole bunch of different, very different voices compared to here's a couple of comics programs. This is how to make comics. Um, I, I think it's something that's been lost as comics have been more accepted into. What do you mean? What do you mean by expectations? If you, today. Go, if you go through a program now, many schools offer degrees in comics, you know, they're part of right. art departments. Sometimes they're part of specialty schools that are just comics. And I think that there are, I hate to say maybe expectation is the wrong word, but I think there is a process of like, if you graduate from this program, you can go to a New York publisher. And I don't mean Marvel, but I mean more of like a graphic novel kind of publisher. 
and you know to do your layouts and you kind of know establishing shots and talking heads and it's somewhat formulaic whereas you go to the early days of the direct market and it's suddenly it's like there are open shelves in these comic book stores we need to fill these shelves and you have a bunch of people who want to make comics like you're describing yourself but you don't have formal education in it so you're learning as you go and what you learn or the way you learn those lessons is very different than say how dan Klaus learned or the hernandez brothers oh, yeah. well, or you know any number of guys who came in in the 80s and essentially were teaching themselves how to make comics and were given that auteur freedom of the uh independent press and i think that's exciting i think that's something that has changed you know good or bad i think it's very different today than it was in the 80s whenever it was suddenly like a bunch of new people have come onto the scene and don't really have rules you know they're just well jim learning. jim this is this is before understanding comics right before mcleod i mean i literally i can remember this had to be a chicago comic-con and we're up in larry martyr's room and there's me and steve Bissett, and scott mcleod has xerox copies of his rough layouts for understanding comics and he's reading it to us <laughs> and it's like i'm like i learned i learned things from like reading film theory books i read eisenstein and i looked at i looked at movies frame at a time in uh in you know movieolas and viewers and and i, I went to you know and I, I that's how you had to cop you had to learn it on the street right and here's scott here's scott reading about comics and i said my my quip was <laughs> i said yeah i'm gonna write it i'm gonna write a history of comics the first line is going to be egypt shmegypt <laughs> and i and set fell out larry martyr they're all laughing but like oh yeah it's a, it, all, it all goes back to the the ancient hieroglyphics and all this crap so forget all this stuff i and i have i've had people quote understanding comics to me i'm listed in the acknowledgments you know i don't know why i didn't i contributed nothing obviously but people quote people quote you know some of my students in my workshop they said you're not doing you're, you're not following scott mcleod i said well i was before that you know i'm before alan moore too but you know i i kind of learned you, you learned it on the street and it was hard won knowledge but Somebody sent me. Uh, somebody sent me a textbook um, a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm in a. I'm in a uh, Bloomsbury textbook on comics, and I. Uh, they had to ask my permission to use a panel or something from Megaton Man. And yeah, they're using terminology that I don't even recognize. You know, they're called. There's there's words for things. Um, you know, I went to college later, but. I don't know all these terms, so I'm probably spewing misinformation about how to create comics now because I don't. <laughs> yeah, right. You're teaching people the wrong way to make comics. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm uneducated and in, in, uh, untutored in this form of cartooning, narrative cartooning now. Don, I want to skip ahead a little bit to um, as you're wrapping up Megaton Man, you start doing Border Worlds as backup and then Border Worlds as a series, and I kind of want to look at that that point in your career from say the late 80s into the early 90s because you do like border worlds you do some of the eros titles like wendy white bread uh for ben frankenstein king kong with fanographics monsters imprint um you know you're doing a lot of these different books in a short window there 
that are very different from one another. What's driving that? Is that uh, something that is motivated by capital? Um, is it opportunities? Like, like what's pushing you in these various directions at that point? Mostly it's a series of failures and unfortunate, unfortunate events. The first thing that happened was, um, well, first of all, uh, Marvel threatened to, to sue us, which was kind of a pro forma letter. They were upset that we were selling this pinback button that said, I eat X-Men for breakfast. <laughs> they considered using the word X-Men to be Marvel merch. So they were upset about that. And uh, you can still buy them from Dennis Kitchen on his website. <laughs> he, he uh, in fact, I met, when I met Kevin Eastman, he was wearing one of these things. Um, but so we, we were threatened with legal action because we were kind of, because all of my, all of my parodies, it, it, I was repeatedly using the quartet and I was making fun of, I was making fun of Spider-Man too often or something. And they, they felt that, that we were trading on their trademarks. Like somebody, like somebody would confuse a 60 cent Marvel comic with a $2 kitchen sink comic. But anyway, um, so that was the first kind of, you know, uh, the sky is falling kind of moment. So I started doing Border Worlds as a backup and I was kind of thinking of that as a lifeboat. Border Worlds goes back to middle school. It was this idea that had evolved slowly over time. And so I was kind of, I always wanted to do a science fiction series and kind of, I was influenced by Star Wars and Close Encounters, all those seventies movies that came out, Aliens or Alien and then Aliens. Um, and uh, I think Jenny had originally been the naked lady from the tank story or something. So anyway, I, I, I started doing the backup and then the, we had announced. So I had, I had these other ideas. I had, you know, Megaton man was just a one shot and I had other ideas that I wanted to pursue. I didn't want to be typecast. I had other ideas. I'd always had other ideas that I planned to pursue more serious, dramatic Hamlet ideas, you know? Um, and this was one of them. And I started the backup feature just to test the waters and um at the same time i was kind of running out of megaton man ideas because i um uh, that that made less that I, I had to do less megaton man per issue so that helped um and then we announced that the the series would only go to 12 issues there was a, a in those days there was the amazing heroes preview issue and we announced that it would end with 12. and then one day Dennis called us into the office. I was living out, out there in Wisconsin, called me and Dave and Pete into the office and said that the color line was coming to the to an end because the spirit was losing money in color. It had started out great, you know, but it, the sales had declined. It only lasted and, a couple of issues in color, really. Like it was it was like Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Spirit, it, it, no, went, was, it went to black and white pretty quick. It, no, it was, uh, it went for maybe two years. Okay. Because um, cause there was a preview in, in Spirit Number 8. There was a color preview of Megaton Man in Spirit Number 8. So it went at least, I want to say about 20 issues. So something like that. Yeah. Anyway, there was another title called Death Rattle, which was in color. That was losing money. 
Um, and that maybe had more to do not so much with sales, but with the fact that Eisner had a certain royalty. Um, and Death Rattle had, you know, uh, to attract to attract industry talent, he, uh, Dennis had to pay a page rate. I wasn't making peanuts on Megaton Man, but that was kind of holding up the whole thing. You know, Megaton Man profits were, were kind of subsidizing <laughs> the whole line. So anyway, uh, he says we got We're going to bring the the mega, we're going to bring the color line to an end. And do you want to do the last three issues in black and white, or do you want to keep doing Megaton Man in black and white? And I said, well, here's what. Why don't we just why don't we just finish it with number ten? Because I was I was working on maybe eight, seven or eight at the time. I said, let's end it. We'll wrap it up with with. 10 and that'll be easy because I haven't drawn anything yet. I'll just condense what I have, the ideas that I have. I uh, probably didn't have, and you're probably not missing anything from, from that uh, contraction. But so, so we, and then, and then we'll do uh, border worlds as a black and white series. Um, that's perfect because it's kind of, I, I envisioned it as a more moody kind of, uh, you know, dark, uh, alien kind of uh, um, thing. Uh, Sigourney Weaver in the darkness in a murky battle, you know, murky starship and so forth. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Kitchen Sink had a, a science fiction line because they, they'd gone from color, the spirit was now in black and white, uh, Border Worlds, Alien Fire was in black and white. That was uh, Eric Vincent and Anthony Smith. Um, I'm, I can't remember exactly when Cadillac or uh, uh, Xenozoic Tales, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, Mark Schultz. I remember when that artwork came in uh, to the into the offices. They were all uh, very excited. I think they previewed it in uh, Death Rattle. So now now we're doing these dark, depressing, <laughs> or at least uh, sober, serious science fiction uh, stories. And I think that was a big change for, for my following, whatever that was, to go from bright, happy superhero satire to uh, suddenly there's this introspective, meandering science fiction storyline about a, a lady on a space station somewhere and intrigue and colonial rebellion and stuff. Um, but I was trying to think more in terms of a story arc we were we weren't at the point yet of thinking of collections and graphic novels per se although eisner had coined the phrase graphic novel but we were still doing serial serialized make it up as you go along kind of storylines at least i was but i was trying to think in in terms of longer story arcs and then when that that came to an end because the the industry went through one of its booms and busts I have a theory. I have a theory that the black and white boom of the 1980s was actually fueled by Frank Miller um, and the Dark Knight, because when when the Rolling Stone issue came out, it was like it, it was the cat's pajamas. I mean, it was like heroin shot into this system of comics and. Um, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was this black and white comic book that had been inspired basically by Frank Miller's Ronin. 
And so suddenly, uh, uh, this is my theory, that everybody thought, well, gee, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are big. You know, everything's going to be a black and white comic book now. So suddenly, black and white comic books were like the biggest, uh, you know, it was like uh, cryptocurrency or something. And so, like, uh, the hamsters are selling 100,000 and troll lords are selling 70,000. And everybody's doing great with black and white comic books. And there's this black and white boom. And it's all fueled by this stupid Rolling Stone article, which was an inside job, you know, Warner Communications pumping up Frank Miller. And Border Worlds benefited from that initially. We, we had pretty good sales. And so my first issue came out and it was, it sold, you know, over 10,000. And, but then, then everybody was glutted with black and white comics. <laughs> and so then you have a, a bust, right? Everybody's over, over gorging on black and white comics. All these retailers have these unsold black and white comics. And, uh, some good things came out of it, you know, Ron Lim and X-Mutants and lots of things that were, that, that were happening, but like everything else, you know, fans and, and retailers just beat it to death and, and, and we make some money, but then we pay the price. So there's a total collapse and uh, I had to bring Border Worlds to an end. And, and uh, luckily, Mike Gold at DC is looking for people to draw for Wasteland. So I was, I, you know, for me, it was, it was like one disaster after another. I was just jumping to the next lifeboat. Um, color comics went away at the kitchen sink, and then black and white comics were impossible. And then I'm, I'm freelancing this insane, <laughs> this insane thing. John Ostrander is writing these scripts based on Del Close stories, and I, I barely knew who Del Close was. I'd met John. So now I'm suddenly freelancing and I'm getting beginner page rates at DC comics, which is still more money than I was ever making in my life at, at kitchen sink, you know, owning this thing, uh, owning these two properties. So it just went from there to there. And then, uh, somehow I was, uh, Kevin Eastman always liked my stuff. As I said, I met him, he was wearing a button. And uh, so he he had me do a couple Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle uh, stories for a couple collections. And um, the thing was, I, I never got the turtles. You know, you grow up, it's easy if you grow up reading comics and you get the concept and you, you can generate ideas, but I, I never got it. So I ended up doing like my own faux turtle stories and he loved them. And uh, so I did that. So I, I ended up doing a few uh, jobs for Archie Turtles and for Mirage. And uh, I did a few things for DC. I did a Dan, a Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn story of the Flash villains, the Rogues Gallery. And I did uh, Bill Loeb's story for the Flash. And so I was doing this, this freelance thing. Um, and it was... It was a learning experience for sure. It's one of those things where I look back now and I think, gosh, I really should have, I should have made more of the opportunity, but I was mostly, mostly angry about not being able to do border worlds. And I was not used to um, illustrating other people's ideas. I was used to illustrating my own ideas. I could, I could, I could have enthusiasm 
for the ideas that came out of my own head. But suddenly I was getting these scripts faxed to me and they just said, you know, panel one, close up, panel two, long shot. And I had no, no method. I had no way to break down a script. And I didn't have the good sense to call up John Ostrander and say, what, what the hell are you doing in this issue? Um, but it was a learning experience. And, and I look back on it now and I, I was really amazed to be cutting my teeth on, uh, you know, with stuff that was actually published. You don't get that kind of opportunity now. Absolutely. For sure. Don, you know what, man? Uh, we, you have such a broad career, and uh, it's clear we're going to do, we're gonna have to do a part two for sure because there's so, still so much to, stuff to get into, man. The Eros, the, the early 1963 stuff. But with the last 15 minutes that we have here, uh, let's, let's hit on the, uh, the new Fantagraphics book that's out. We did a review of the PDF that you slid us some months back. We described it as a Gordian knot of uh, comics influence because of things like where, you know, you have you have the quartet. That's a Fantastic Four parody. You have Mystery Incorporated from 1963. That's a Fantastic Four parody. But you can't use the those characters in your comics. So you have to do a parody of a parody and have them interact with your parody characters. Describe what this comic is to people. Well, first of all, I got to thank you guys for like reviving my career to a great extent you start talking about splitting image and uh, the savage dragon team up i didn't even think you guys liked me i'm like what are these videos they're doing these reaction videos to these old comic books and so suddenly people are like hey have you seen this thing uh so that thank you for that but um yeah um well i don't know where to begin I, i've told this story several times i mean beset I was involved in the original 63 as a letterer. I, had, I tell a whole story in the back of the book. I'll skip that part. But, um, yeah, I just, uh, I again, and, and I, I think of my work now as being more writerly. I, I start with the, at the typewriter. I start with the keyboard, and I, I plan things out, and I try to plot things out. And I write scripts first. And I change a great deal when I get to the drawing board, but I, I'm, I'm much, it's much easier for me now in my old age, rather than to, to, to draw dozens of pages and then have to scrap half of them and, and retool them and so forth. It's a lot easier to sit down and work out my raw ideas in a script. Um, and I'm uh, more confident in my use of language. College will do that to you. So I write scripts and then I then I tear those apart. It's a lot it's a lot less painful to cut something you've written rather than to have you know finished artwork that you have to kind of uh, you know, that there's no use for. So I, I I approach things as a writer now, but X amount of comics I, I reverted to form. I just drew this. I had this idea of a cover. And um, I penciled it. It says, fuck Al, here's the 1963 annual. <laughs> and I posted it. And I posted it on Facebook. And again, Steve Bissett went nuts. He's loved it. And he shared it. So in, in the micro world of Facebook, suddenly it went semi-viral. And people are like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. You're going to finish this 1963 annual. And, and I would explain, well, not really. <laughs> It's a satire about the fact that it was never finished. Um, 
And but people are like, "Oh, is this going to be real? Is this going to can I can I get a copy tomorrow? You know, everything's got to be immediate." And I said, "No, I'm going to take it's going to take me a year." So again, I do five pages, just like I did Megaton Man number one. And it's like, do I have anything here? I don't know. You know, and I'm making up characters, and I don't know where. Like I just, you know, I I drew this uh, lobster-looking guy, who's kind of end man, and he's a cyclops. And I literally did not think about it until I got to the page, and it's like, oh, he's a he's cyclopster. Like, I don't know where these things come from, it, and I, I don't think it's it's just the mojo wire is connected or something. And I thought it's Cyclopster in time, you know, and psychic squid. I have no idea where that that just fell out of the sky. And limber lass. If you look at the if you look at the original pencil of that cover, uh, there's just placeholders. Um, because I, I was, I, in fact, I hadn't even read the whole 63 series cause I got fired. So I wasn't even familiar with the characters. So I wasn't trying to do an archeological dig. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to reconstruct what Alan might've done or, you know, what Jim Lee might've drawn or anything. I have no idea. Cause, uh, I never, I don't know any more than the public knows cause I was out of it. I was halfway through, I was out of the series. And I never owned it. I never had any participation. So I'm just making it up as I go along. And I have five pages, and then I do ten more pages. And then I start to plot it out, and then it becomes what it is. So it's just um, – and then I look at the calendar, and I realize, oh, it's been 30 years. I'll, I'll put it out in, in 2023. And Gary Groth wanted to do it, so here you have it. So fantastic, man. That's short enough for you? And and humbling enough to know that that 1963 was 30 years ago. Yeah, Jesus. really. Yeah, man. Well, you guys came in. You know, see, this is the interesting thing about your channel and your whole orientation is you came in at probably the most overheated time. Sure. Old timers like us were like, what is all this tinfoil logo stuff and plastic bags? We, we thought it was an abomination. <laughs> we thought it was the most frass disco era last globe moment in comics we, we thought this is just horrible and yet you guys came into it and you fell in love with the art form in spite of or because of all the glitz and the wizard and all that crap so, so us old timers we were like oh this is this is blasphemy <laughs> so much you of know? those those comics uh you know the mcfarlands and in the, the life and stuff uh the attraction was that it was uh drawable to a uh, third grader or something like that like you saw it and you saw you saw the rough edges and uh if this if this is the popular comics of the day and these are the guys drawing it like that's more achievable than some of the levels of craft that you would see with you know true maestros and stuff uh so that that was kind of like uh, the influence that that's what we witnessed as we were growing up plus they would draw more full figures and that's the era where as a kid i'm copying so much more out of comics and so like to get more bang for your buck was like the more full figures per issue than <laughs> than anything else. So it would just always well, you, happen what, to be what's the same interesting, guys. What's interesting about you guys is you went back and looked at the, at the legacy. You know, you went back to look at From and you looked, went back to look at Kirby and you went back to look at things that had proceeded. And you, you dug into 
like historians, like, you know, art historians, you dug into the, the past it, and the it, traditions. It only took a year or two of reading that stuff to realize there's nothing there. And uh, we like comics, so uh, you have to you have to dig, dig deeper uh, at that point. And you had some great stores in Pittsburgh. Where did you get, did you guys go to like uh, BEM and Ides? And... Never BEM. <laughs> Never BEM. Ides comes a little later. It was Phantom of the Attic was was my first, but but I discovered direct market shops late. We were just talking about it earlier, man. I was I was 11 or 12 by the time I even knew. Like my, It was like my parents ripped that page out of the yellow pages because they know what they would have been in, in store for if I would have found that. But uh, it was it was all Kmart and the I I would describe us our generation as the last vestige of uh, the direct I mean the uh, newsstand comic uh, reader you know we're we're the very very tail end of that I never bought any of that um, Rob and Todd stuff you know at a comic shop it was just and yet and yet and yet the image era did not permanently damage you guys you just somehow well we are getting a class action lawsuit uh to, 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 together because of what where, where our skills may have been <laughs> with uh with, with without such influence but don we want to uh let everybody know about that phantom book it's got a big title what is it jimmy it is x amount of comics 1963 when else annual <laughs> that's so good uh, so, so uh, Jimmy also alluded to the uh, Megaton Man Omnibus. Don, what do you have on the horizon, and where can people follow you on online to keep appraised of what you have uh, in store? Well, I'm mostly on I'm mostly on Facebook. This is my I don't know how well you can see this. This is the penciled cover to the Omnibus. It's actually going to move across the screen like that. Um, I got to finish that, get that off. I, I did a lot of scanning last year. So I scanned everything. We've got two volumes planned. I don't think Gary Groth wants to lose too much money at once, so he's kind of spacing these things out. So next year, hopefully, we'll have volume one, which will be pretty much the kitchen sink years, followed by volume two. We're calling it, I'm calling it the Megaton Man universe, the complete Megaton Man universe. So volume two would be Bizarre Heroes. That's fantastic. Which was my self-published thing from the 90s. I want to talk to you a lot about that next time we uh, we we get you on the hook, man. Because that was a, that was on my pull list. Whenever, whenever I d discovered comic shops, Bizarre Heroes was coming out. I, I still have my trade uh, from that I got signed by you in like 1992 or 93 at Pittsburgh Comic Con. And then I started picking it up with issue five on the uh on the 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 pull pull list at phantom I remember Park. your early your early samples were all image oh, you yeah. were trying to break into image oh yeah yeah we got more to talk about and then uh, i'm i'm got more where that came from i'm doing new stuff new megaton man stuff that's cool man when's the omnibus uh, is it scheduled it's not scheduled it's uh the designer Doug Herb is working on Stan Max collection right now so hopefully um he will be starting on the design before the end of the year. It'll probably come out middle of the next year. Probably too late for San Diego, just like X amount of comics, but that's the way it goes. I mean, what's 50, 50 copies sold at San Diego? You know what I mean? Like, that's that's not what... It doesn't matter as much. People are there to go uh, see, go to Hall H and Hall see what H. the new movie is. Uh, well, thanks for the plug, guys. Thanks for the promotion. I appreciate it. Yeah, social media. Uh, Facebook instagram twitter it, any of that stuff just face mostly facebook and i have some blogs uh, you can find just google me 
Do you favors, like follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and, hit the uh, bell so that we can notify you when new videos are available. Kayfabe-tober is still upon us. These are your prompts for your for your drawings this uh, season. Make sure you add us. Make sure you tag us in those images. Make sure we see those images, and we are going to uh, share and we retweet as many of these uh, as possible. The videos are brought to you. Uh, in part by the patrons, uh, the King Kayfabers on the Patreon get all the videos before anybody else, thus mitigating the Kayfabe effect. We are a daily YouTube channel with more than 1,500 videos at your disposal. We might have talked about some of your favorites, so hit the search field in uh, the front page of the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Search for your favorite comics, check out those episodes, but if we didn't cover your favorite comics, you have to let us know what those comics are so that we can push those uh, titles a little bit higher up on our to read pile ultimately the videos are brought to you by the books that we make jim rug and myself we are uh, working and functioning cartoonist this is a healthy blend of our bibliography right now but we're making stuff all the time and that time is now the hip-hop family tree omnibus is out in stores make sure you scoop this sucker up man it's the best book i ever made collecting all four volumes of hip-hop family tree inside of one handy gold foil hardcover with a bunch of new material so even if you got those original volumes there's plenty enough here to justify your purchase x-men grand design trilogy trade paperback is coming to you in november collecting all of my x-men grand design works and uh, some of those volumes are out of print as we speak i'm serializing a daily strip uh that uh is going to be coming out January 1st, 2024. It's called Switchblade Shorties. But if you are on my Patreon, you're going to get early access to uh, those strips. Thank you guys so much for uh, joining the Patreon. Uh, we received a whole bunch of feedback uh, in the past uh, week or two. I put out new strips every Tuesday for uh, the early adopters to enjoy. Red Room has been the focus for the past couple of years. Uh, there are two trade paperbacks out there the anti-social network and trigger warnings these are self-contained uh these each contain four self-contained stories so it doesn't matter which one you read first but there's going to be a, a third volume called crypto killers coming out in january that i want to let you guys know about man save 20 bucks from your uh, christmas and hanukkah loot and scoop up the uh red room crypto killers trade paperback Jimmy, what do you got on the horizon? Street Angel, Princess of Poverty is my next book coming out from Image Comics. It'll be out in November. You need to pre-order it now at your local comic shop or wherever you buy books or comics. It collects all the Street Angel comics that are not in Deadly Scroll Live, which is also from Image Comics. They'll make a really nice set on your shelf together. And uh, there's no overlap between the two books. So pick them both up. You'll have all the Street Angel comics. A Hulk Grand Design. This is my contribution to the Grand Design Marvel project. And uh, I believe it's out of print. So if you haven't added it to your shelf already, these copies are disappearing fast. Pick one up while you still can because once it's out of print, no guarantee that it is going to be reprinted anytime soon. And finally, I've been self-publishing lately. True Crime Funnies, three nonfiction stories in there, including two wrestling yarns, the 1986 zine celebrating the greatest year in comics history, and the BW zine celebrating the black and white explosion in self-publishing comics and oddities from the 80s and 90s that I love so much. Those are all going to be available on my website, jimrug.com, October 26th. I do have big quantities, but that is like my holiday fall sale. So if you want to add any of these books to your collection, that is the place to get them, October 26th, jimrug.com. It's imperative that you guys kayfabe affect the books because that keeps uh, the lights on in the uh, the studios. But there are some ways to uh, directly support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Jimmy, let the people know. Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also 
Pick up Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, merchandise, mugs, hats, stickers, and more from our spread shop. That link is also under this video in the show notes. There you have it. Several ways to keep these videos coming to you on a regular basis. Uh, without further ado, Jimmy, please give the people their marching orders and we'll be on our way. Read more comics.